You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Luke chapter 4. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. He came home. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the... He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, I love how it says he began to say to them because he probably said this to them a lot. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him. Listen for the change in the people. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. And this was a well-known saying at the time. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth... I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. These people who just thought well of him. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. I am happy our town is not built on the brow of a hill. So if you get mad at me, all I have to do is just get my Yaris and speed on out of here. (laughs) So that they could throw him off the cliff. They just said, we love you. And now they're trying to throw him off a cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is not how a pastor wants a Sunday morning to end ever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray this all the time so I don't feel guilty praying it after this text. Please right now make preaching easy. And please right now make hearing preaching a delight to the congregation. We pray that your hand would be on every church. And we pray that every house of worship, no matter what the religion, would somehow lead to Christ. In your holy, precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're starting a series called Human or Broken. Human or broken. This is a series that's going to lead us into the Lenten season and prepare us for Easter. Easter is the first day of spring this year. How many cannot wait until April 21st? My God in heaven. Just want to make a quick passing comment. Lent is not a season where we celebrate darkness. It's a season where we remember that we are supposed to be light in the darkness. And so we talk an awful lot about darkness during Lent. We're not celebrating it. We're reminding ourselves that there is still very much dark with the world. And our job is to be a torch. 
And so Lent merely reminds us that as good as things can be, somewhere in the world it's still dark. And it's the church's job and anointing by God to enter that darkness and be the light of Christ. Human or broken. If we're talking about things like the rhetoric of our leaders, something an athlete said about women, a video of some guy hitting his girlfriend that goes viral. When we talk about these things, we use the phrase, that person is dehumanizing other people. And we talk about dehumanizing rightfully like it's a negative thing because it is a negative thing to dehumanize somebody, to talk about them in a way that lessens their humanity. Do we agree? Okay. But then, in church, we say things like, I have to deny my human nature. My human nature is bad. I need to replace it with Christ's nature. But Christ is a human too. And so, is it wrong to dehumanize? Or are we supposed to dehumanize ourselves and say, I need to deny my human nature? And we get into this paradox where in the social world, we say it's wrong to dehumanize, but in the Christian church, especially the evangelical church, we sit there and say, oh, you know what? I made a mistake because my human nature is so evil. Look what Jesus says about our human nature. He says, pray that you not enter into temptation. Now listen to this. Jesus says, for indeed the spirit is willing, but the flesh is He's criticizing them. He's saying, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. The implication is, your flesh should become as strong as your spirit. We've been saying, oh my God, my flesh is out of control. My flesh is too strong. I need to deny my flesh. I need to deny my human nature. But that's not the critique of Jesus. Jesus says, your problem is not that your flesh is too strong. Your problem is that your flesh is too weak, and because it's so weak, it says yes right away. It's impulsive. It's compulsive. Your flesh loses its temperament all the time. And so the question is, should we be saying things like, I knocked this over. Oh, I knocked that over. I knocked that book over because I'm only human. Or should we be saying, I knocked that book over because I'm not human enough yet? A baby said amen just now, praise the Lord. We sin precisely because we're not human enough. Jesus shows up to reveal what perfect humanity looks like. So in the differentiation of Jesus' life, we can see our lack of humanity and grow in our human nature. We're not supposed to not be human. We're supposed to become more human. That's why we dehumanize people, because we're not human enough. It's why we lose our patience, because we're not human enough. Well, pastor, how can you say that? Because Jesus is human enough, and Jesus is the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus is what the perfect human life looks like. Jesus is what God's humanity looks like. And so our 
categories are not human meaning broken. We're either human or we're broken. God has called us to be human. Jesus is the only way that we can ever see the schemes of evil for what they are. Here's the thing. We are incapable, and this is, gonna be, this is kind of a funny analogy, we are incapable of seeing, as we used to say back in the day, the wileys of the devil. We're incapable of seeing it if we try to look at the devil. We can't see the enemy or we can't see evil the way we're supposed to if we're looking at evil. We can only see evil when we look at the victory that Jesus has over it. Jesus got sent into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit knowing he would defeat the devil, but it's in Jesus encountering Satan that we can actually see Satan for who he is. Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil so that we could see the devil. Watch what happens if God never shows up in the Garden of Eden. If God never shows up in the Garden of Eden, pretend there's no part in that story where God shows up at all, and Eve is told by one of the creatures, you should eat that fruit. And she eats it, and it says, and their eyes were open like it does, and they knew that they were naked, and they hid themselves. We would say, good. That's what somebody should do when they're naked. They should hide themselves. What are they doing walking around naked, not hiding themselves? This is inappropriate. If you'd never heard anything about God, you would think it's good that they ate that fruit. You would think the fruit is good because the fruit showed them that they were naked, and then they finally started living in modesty, and not flaunting their stuff everywhere they go. But because God is a main character, we know that what happened was bad. But without God in the story, what happened would look good. See? You can't see evil by looking at evil because it will always appear good. You can only see the heart of evil by looking at the victory that Jesus has over it. So our goal as Pentecostals, when we do spiritual warfare, is not to find the enemy. It's to find Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, we will see the part of the enemy that we need to see. No more, no less. The right part. Discernment. You don't have discernment by pursuing evil. You have discernment by looking at Jesus, and then he is the one who gives you the ability to test and distinguish between spirits. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And as Elder George said today, and the things on earth will grow strangely dim, as the song says. In other words, when you look at Jesus, it's like looking at an eclipse. You will go blind. But when you look at Jesus, you'll go blind to the things you should be blind to. And you'll begin to see the things that you should see. Satan never speaks. I'm getting to the text. Don't worry. I know everyone has anxiety right now. Like, why is he not preaching on the text? Nobody cares. Satan doesn't speak when God is in the garden. When God starts talking, Satan's oddly silent. Before God showed up, he's chirping like crazy. Do you see this fruit? Do you see the fruit? Do you see the fruit? The fruit, the fruit, the fruit. Do you hear the fruit? You know, I'm going to die. As soon as God shows up, he's got nothing to say. But watch this. When Jesus shows up on the scene in the Gospel of Mark, the first person to ever identify him as the Son of God is a demon inside another person. We don't like this part. 
Because in Genesis, evil hadn't grown to the extent of infiltrating humanity. It was against humanity, but it couldn't talk to God from humanity. It could only talk to humanity. But by the time Jesus shows up in Mark, Mark wants you to know from the outset that what Jesus is here to do is not to talk about individual sins and forgiveness. He's here to defeat a power that has now infiltrated his creation and is literally living inside of his creation. Have you ever read that weird verse in Genesis where it said, the sons of God looked at the daughters of men and saw that they were attractive and they came and they slept with them. And no one knows what it means. Here's what it means. By the time Jesus shows up on the scene and a demon is speaking from inside a person, that's what that looks like. The powers that were once separate from humanity have incarnated themselves. So now this voice that was opposed to us in Genesis is now a voice that's speaking from inside of us. And Jesus has to stand and confront it. Now, there's a story where the disciples are in a boat and Jesus says to them, Beware, I'm trying to remember, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. And the disciples, probably like me, would say, why is he talking about leaven? I am kind of hungry. And Jesus is like, okay. I'm not talking about, you know when you get really annoyed, you talk very deliberately, you're like, I'm not talking about that kind of leaven. We all do it. I watch my wife with my daughter. She's like, hi, Sophia. Hi, Sophia. And then she's like, Sophia, I said, go clean your room. Like, all of a sudden, when you get mad, you think that enunciating is going to change things. <laughs> Look, you could enunciate to me all you want. I'm not taking out the garbage. I'm going to forget. I'm sorry. You could say garbage as much as you want, <laughs> and I'm going to forget every single time. This is why I preach a long time, because I end up saying stupid things like that, and I don't want to go home. Beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. And they're like, we have no bread, we're starving. And it says this, it says that they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Watch this, because their hearts were hardened. What character in the Bible saw signs and wonders and his heart kept getting hardened? Pharaoh. That verse is meant to show you that what was once an evil king opposed to Israel has now shown up inside of the person. Their hearts were hardened after they saw miracles like Pharaoh's heart was hardened after he saw plagues. We can no longer just blame evil anymore like Eve did. The devil made me. Now there's no difference between humanity and evil. It has infiltrated humanity. So Jesus is here to show us what life without the infiltration of evil looks like. So that we who have been infiltrated by evil can see his life and realize, wait a minute, I've been deceived. Wait a minute, I'm not headed in the right direction. Wait a minute, this really tasted good, but it was sweet going down, but bitter in my stomach. Jesus unlocks the power that evil has over us and then shows us his life so that we can see that we've been infiltrated by evil. It's no longer an opposing force. It has now divinely conspired and gotten into our flesh. 
So God in Jesus comes and does the same thing evil did. He climbs into the same flesh that looks as simple and draws the enemy to himself. And when the enemy gets a little too close, the enemy's like, oops, wrong human. Wrong human. So now, let's look at each of these stories that we're going to talk about over the next five weeks. And what we're going to see is we're not going to point out bad people in the story. We're going to be the bad people in the story. And look how the perfect life that is infiltrated by the Spirit and not infiltrated by evil deals with life that is broken. Does that make sense? Thank God. Jesus goes to Nazareth, and he is met by toxic familiarity. There is a way to be familiar with somebody that is rooted in intimacy, and being familiar with somebody through intimacy, and I'm not just talking about marital intimacy, I'm talking about the right appropriate amount of intimacy for every relationship that we have. When you're really good friends with somebody, when you're really in love with your spouse, when you are enjoying your social networks, you are familiar with people, but the familiarness is rooted in intimacy. But there's also, and I think we've all experienced this, a toxic way to be familiar. Where when, you're, when, when being familiar is rooted in intimacy, it's exciting even when it's old. You say things like, I've always loved this about you. You've always responded like that, and I love that about you. You're saying, I know you, you're predictable, but every time you do it, it just brings, it's, it's new to me every time. That's good, that's being familiar in a good way. But then, there's being familiar with things in a way that causes boredom, in a way that causes disinterest, in a way that makes you feel like you need something new because what you're looking at isn't doing it for you anymore. And that's what Jesus encounters at Nazareth. They say, oh, my God, he is so smart. Oh, my God, look what he did with the 5,000. Oh, my God, he's a genius. And then he says, you love me. Yeah, we love you. You believe everything I'm going to say? Yes. Okay, you know that Messiah you're waiting for? Yes, I'm him. I'm like, aren't you Mary's son? Didn't you, didn't you grow up? Didn't you grow up among us? Didn't you smack your thumb with a hammer with, with your dad? Isn't there some rumors about how you were born that aren't really flattering to your mom? All of us, have you ever had somebody turn on you like that? They love you until you're going to influence them. They love you until your life demands that something in their life becomes different, and all of a sudden, you go from being the dark knight to the joker in two seconds. I just love him. He's my hero. Oh, my God, I can't, he's manipulating me. Like, right away. Right away. Lord, please heal my daughter's cold. Jesus purposely, hear me, because you're not going to like what I'm about to say, and I do this on purpose. The first kind of love that we need to experience to be disciples of Jesus is love that disappoints. The people that Jesus was talking to, 
had, listen to me carefully, had appointed categories of what they believed God was supposed to be and the Messiah was supposed to be. They had categories based on their traditions and based on the Torah. They had categories of God, and they were waiting for God to show up in the categories they had. They had appointed categories for God, and Jesus came to disappoint those categories. They appointed categories and said, these are the categories that we have appointed. We've appointed them our categories. And Jesus came and said, you're fired to all of those categories. He disappointed what had been appointed. His love will first destroy what you thought his love was supposed to be. And you will have two choices, to follow him out of Nazareth or to try to push him off a cliff. I will explain that further. God cannot be grasped. God will not be held hostage to our experience of him, our ability to grasp him, or our theology of him. I skipped the order, it's okay. We experience God, and then we run around for the rest of our life saying, this is how God works. That's how he worked for you. And that's not only that. It, that's, not only, that's how he worked for you, and that's how he worked for you that time. I'm going to get profoundly serious. I know I joke around, but I'm going to get... We have been doing this in the church The Catholics have been doing this to the Protestants, and the Protestants have been doing this to the Catholics forever. Your experience of God is wrong. No, your experience of God is wrong. And we've been pushing Jesus out of Nazareth every time we do that. The way you experienced him is the way you experienced him, and he might not ever let you experience him that way again. And if you're only looking for that experience of him, you have him in a category, and he's purposely going to come and disappoint you. Our theology of him. I would love to preach a series that is 52 weeks long on this subject. Our theology of him sucks. No denomination of Christianity doesn't have arsenic in its theology of God. It's all broken. It is a baby putting on dad's shoes pretending it's going to work. It's pathetic, and we sit there and we take the first doctrine we ever learned and we say, this is the right one, and we appoint a category. It's our evangelical theology. It's our liturgical theology. It's our Pentecostal theology, and Jesus comes, disappoint, disappoint, disappoint those categories. That's why I'm obsessed with us being convergent, because when we do our best to bring all the different expressions and experiences of God into the room, it looks a little bit more like Christ. So we say a creed, but we also pass out at the altar here. We, ca- we call it the Eucharist, but we also know, we also put oil on you and trust that God's going to heal your leg if it's hurt. We do all of these things because as far as we know, God does all of these things. And the minute I find out that he does something else, we'll add that too. Because we're supposed to be hospitable, reflections, images of God. And the Catholics alone are not the image of God. And the Protestants alone are not the image of God. When you put them together, you're starting to get closer to the image of God. 
We live in Nazareth. We live in the familiar. And God is trying to take us out of it. And then our ability to grasp him. Holy cow. Watch this. Luke's gospel. This is amazing. Luke's gospel. I'm plagiarizing all of my friends that I ask, how should I preach this? And they all tell me, and I just turned it into a sermon. In college, if you do it, it's called plagiarism. And here, it's called a sermon. It's fantastic. Jesus disappears when they try to kill him. I I wish that you could disappear when somebody's about to ask you to do something. You still see me? Didn't work. I must not have enough faith. So So as to remove mountains and make myself invisible. He disappears mystically. All of a sudden, they're trying to push him. And he's gone, and there's just this angry, awkward crowd of people with nobody there anymore. But at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus disappears again on the road to Emmaus. Watch this. In the first story of Jesus disappearing, their false categories of who they thought he was couldn't grasp him. He disappears. He's elusive. He is more elusive than the categories we can have for him. And he disappears. But then, in Luke, at the end, they see him for who he is. And he still disappears. He vanishes before their sight. Because neither our illusions of who God is or our right view of who God is can grasp him. This is why he says to Mary in John 21, Don't cling to me. Remember this story? She grabs him and he says, don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Here's what he's saying in our terms. Mary, I'm not the Jesus you knew on Thursday. You knew me one way until Friday. But don't cling to the way that you've known me. I'm so much more than what you've experienced. I'm so much more than the theology you think you know about me. I'm so much more than your ability to hold on to the hem of my garment. The hem of my garment used to heal people, but now my spirit's going to do it. The train of my robe is about to fill the temple, and the hem of my garment is about to be everywhere in the spirit. Don't think my clothes are special anymore. My spirit is going to do what my clothes did for the woman with the issue of blood. He's shattering and telling us I'm purposely disappointing you so that you can reset your compass so that you can live into the verse that says, I has not seen nor has ear heard nor has it entered into our imagination what God has in store for us. The problem is what God has in store for us is also who God is. So the text is saying, you can't even imagine who I am. And when you imagine me too hard and too long, All of a sudden, I will disappoint your life. So if you're walking through a season right now, anybody in this room, where God seems to be oddly absent and disappointing to you, all he's doing is loving you into disenchantment. He's disenchanting the spells that we constantly get cast under to believe God is something that he's not. Ian, put the Meister Eckhart quote up there. It's just time for it right now. The Meister Eckhart quote, God as you really are, rid us of God as we imagine you to be. God as you really are, rid me of the God I'm imagining you to be. You're more than I can imagine. 
if Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan to the Pentecostal church, he would have said, a man, my friend Drake, was on a journey, and Drake got beat up because he's a Patriots fan. And then Jesus would have ended the story because that is the just and right thing to have happen. <laughs> I'm done. He's such an introvert. This is his nightmare. Like, he's mortified. This man got beat up. And a Lutheran passed by. And a Methodist minister passed by. And then a Roman Catholic cardinal stopped and helped him. Pentecostal church, who was the good neighbor? And we'd be like, "Mm, the Catholic. The Catholic guy, I guess, I suppose. We wouldn't want to say it because what we've done is we've said we have the right experience of God. We have the right worship of God. As if Pentecostal worship never got weird. How many more ministers need a personal jumbo jet before we start realizing you could have a three-piece suit on and not a collar and still be corrupt? Collars aren't in the Bible. Well, neither are polos. That's not the point. So much to say and so little time to say it. If we don't take God out of the categories that we have for him, we will never be able to take ourselves out of the categories other people have for us. Because if we only, if we believe God is the way that we've experienced him, then people are going to believe that we are the way they've experienced us. Has anybody ever experienced you on a bad day? I'm judging from the murmuring laughter that this happens often. If that person determines that their last experience of you is you, they will misjudge you. We've been doing it to God since we've gotten radically saved, and especially people who have gotten radically saved assume that God is the way that they first experienced him all the time, and he's not. He's the God who's capable of being that way, who likes to be that way, but isn't always that way for everybody. People take your history away from you, and they judge you on the last experience they have of you. That's called toxic relationship, where the way we feel about each other is based on the last way the other person was. You could... How many married people we have? This is easier to pick on marriage here. You could, and I'm not talking to just men, either spouse, you could get it right for six and a half days. You get it wrong once, and you always do this. I don't always do this. I just did it that time. Leave me alone. And we all do it. Men, we do it too. We do it too. Not as much, but we do it too. (laughs) People are more than your experience of them. You're more than the last time somebody experienced you. And And when somebody experienced you, your experience was more than what they were experiencing. 
we call people horrible names. Women who dress immodestly and we see them out. We, we, we assume all these things. You don't know what her dad was like. You don't know what her family was like. That might be the best she can be doing right now. But we experience and say that you are the experience I'm having with you. And we don't want anybody to do that to us, but we do it to God all the time. If we're not willing to be disappointed by God, then we will be disappointing and be disappointed by everybody we meet in our life. God has to shatter because the categories we have for God are the categories we have for other people and are the categories we live in because of other people. God has to annihilate categories. He is the God who showed up to you that way that time, but he's also the God who's going to show up to you the complete opposite way, and if the Pharisees missed him then, we're capable of missing him now. It's the same thing with our, theolo- with our theology of God. If we only view God based on the theology that we happen to be born into, then people are going to see us in our relationship to God the last way they experienced us. And they're going to look at me. And maybe you cut me off on the road. And maybe my face looked a little annoyed when you cut me off. And oh darn, that's somebody from Salem. Oh, and it's, the, it's a new person. They don't know me yet. And now they leave thinking I'm that kind of minister. They see me and they see God based on that experience. I am that kind. They got that one right, but that's not the point. That's not the point. Don't see my sin, see me, please. It's the only way this church will survive. Don't see me either, see Jesus, please. Redact all everything I just said. And our ability to grasp people. Look it, I'm manipulating this microphone right now. If I wasn't, it would be on the floor. But if this microphone were a person, I should not be manipulating it. It should be free to walk away. If we try to manipulate God like God is a theology, he's not. He's also not the Bible. He gave us the Bible because the Bible is as much of him as we can possibly handle in this lifetime. But he's more than it because he wrote it. I could draw a circle on a page. That circle represents me, but it is not me because I drew it. If we try to hold God like this, we will hold people like this and we will be held by people like this. We have to let him disappoint us. If we refuse to walk through the disenchanting, disappointing love of God, then we will be disenchanted by and we will disenchant other people. He ha- you know, how th- David says, Lord, you have put my feet in a broad place. We need God to put us in a broad room with him. A big room that is more filled with possibility than it is with fact. Please write down what I just said. Do I have a pen up here? Like, I want to write that down too. It's more, God should be filled more with possibility than with fact. We have been an answer factory, and it's part of the reason why the world has been devastated by the church, because the church should not be a place that generates answers. It should be a place that invites questions and generates fellowship. 
write down how many times Jesus clearly answers somebody. I do this for a living almost never. I get annoyed. I've read the stories a hundred times. Each time I think he's going to answer it this time. And he never does. It's the same answer every year. But it makes me wonder. And the minute I start to wonder, the categories start to dissipate. Because there's no mystery in an evangelical theology. There's no mystery. God does this. And if you do this, you'll be blessed this way. And if you don't do it, you won't be blessed this way. And it's, there's no mystery. It's just, it's just a manual of directions. And how many people are good at using a manual for directions anyway? I can't believe Sophia's crib hasn't fallen apart yet. I can because my dad put it together. I want to do something. I I honestly, like when I wrote this sermon, I don't know how to land the plane on this. Because it's so vast. We need to be people that don't put God in a box. And if here's the thing. If you sit there and say, people keep putting me in a box, it's because you have God in one. Because watch this. Jesus was put in a box by the people in Nazareth, and he was okay with it. They were enraged at him, and what did he do? He left. Have you ever, has anybody ever been angry before? Like angry, angry, not just like that, like, eh, I was angry. Like angry? Before, a bunch of liars, I swear. When you're angry, you don't want to leave. You want to say something. I wish I could say something. Give me the chance to say. If they text me one more time, I see them little bubbles. If this is what I think it is, I'm going to say something back. I have deleted so many emails that I was going to send since I've already been the pastor. And it is Jesus grabbing my hand and deleting the email. Because I don't want to delete it. It tastes so good to send it. Jesus just leaves. What does this mean? God, who's the the human that is not infiltrated by evil, can leave a misunderstanding of him without defending himself. My God in heaven, how does he do that? They get him wrong, they misunderstand him, and they accuse him for being the opposite of who he is, and he says, I'm just going to leave. And here's the thing. He never leaves us or forsakes us, so why did he leave Nazareth? That's a good question, right? I don't know. I'm just kidding. He leaves so that Nazareth has the space to leave Nazareth Nazareth and follow him. No, 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 no. Look at this. Don't ever be silent in that tone of voice. Ever again. (laughs) He leaves Nazareth to give them the space to see the dissonance between their anger and where he is and leave the place of familiarity. When people get angry at us, we get closer to them. And we fight, we're no longer fighting them, we're fighting the anger. When somebody's misjudging you, when somebody's critiquing you wrongly, leave. And let them see the dissonance between the critique and who you really are down the street, not caring. Give them the chance. God is the kind of God who lets us get angry at him and leaves us without realizing he's left. Oh, there's so many things. I'm going to try, Stuart. There's so many things I want to say. Holy smokes. But I won't because I get to preach every week, so I will save it. I want 
us to look at. The best way I thought to end this is by looking at the lectionary reading that was read this morning three times. And each time we're going to do something different. So first, we're just going to read 1 Corinthians 13 as it is. What we want to do here is we want to try to find a memorable way for us to see what real human love is. Because when we read this the first time, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about love in 1 Corinthians 13. This is how we end. We're going to talk about love in 1 Corinthians 13. And the minute I say love, without knowing it, what we are all going to do is we're going to impose our experience of love onto that text. How you've been loved and how you've chosen to love because of that will be imposed on this text. That's too many interpretations. We're going to read it a second time, and we're going to substitute the word love with something else. That will get us closer, and then we're going to read it a third time with a visual, and we'll see exactly what love means. So whatever categories we have of love, let God disappoint them as we go through this particular practice. So let's read it the first time, the regular way. I'll read it. You can just listen. Sophia, cover your mouth. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am, an, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I did not know you could do all those things and not have love. Maybe that's just me. Love is patient, not mine, and kind, not mine. Love does not envy or boast, mine does. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Is this not hilarious? It is not irritable. What? Obviously, love's never hungry. Or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never taps out. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. I still am a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. No, I didn't. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. How many believe that Jesus is love? Let's replace the word love with Christ and see how this changes. If I speak, speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not Christ, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not Christ, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not Christ, I gain nothing. Christ is patient and kind. Christ does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Christ bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Christ never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then shall I know fully, even as Christ has fully known me. So now faith, hope, and Christ abide, these three. But the greatest of these is Christ. And now we have to show what that looks like. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not Christ, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not Christ, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not Christ, I gain nothing. Christ is patient and kind. Christ does not envy or boast. He's not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Christ bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Christ never ends. In that picture... Jesus is being helped. You want to shatter a category? Here's one that will shatter right now. Does Jesus need to be helped? No. Is he capable of carrying that cross up to the mountain by himself? Yes. So you ready what Jesus does here? Jesus redefines help from something we need to something we should just want even if we don't need it. Help is not based on need. Help is based on fellowship. That's Heavenly Father, I pray right now. Let's bow our heads. I'm so thankful that this sermon can't end. Father God, in this space, I just don't feel an ending. I don't feel a resolve in my spirit. And I'm thankful for that because this one can't end. We're so used to sermons ending, but this one's going to go. Because we need to learn to love the way you love. Be loved the way that you desire to love us and love others the way that you love them. But to do that, we need our vision, our expectations, our categories of you to be shattered. And so I pray this week that whatever category we have of you, 
that you would reveal to us one way or another that you're more than that and that we wouldn't be the people that are trying to get offended by you when you do that. But we would fall in love with the way that you teach us to unlearn and relearn about you for the rest of our lives. Let's stand to our feet this morning. As we ready to come to the table, Mark tells the same story of Jesus being rejected at Nazareth, but Mark adds one small detail to his story. In Mark's telling of the story, in Mark's telling of the story, Jesus is rejected at Nazareth, and then it says, he couldn't do any mighty miracles there except that he healed a few that were sick. Why does Mark leave us with that addition? Because here's what Mark is saying. There's a certain kind of person that doesn't understand God because they have too many categories. But there's one group of people that see him rightly, and it's the poor. That's why we come to this table. We come to this table to get poor. Because the rich have too many categories, but the poor only have one. I need you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would fall on these gifts and make them for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And I pray that you sanctify us also, that we would come to this table and every step we take, we would become increasingly more poor, that our categories of you would be increasingly abolished, and that by the time we get to the table, all the only word in our mouth would be, I need you. And not because of need, but because of desire, you will help us. If we ever didn't need you, you would still be helping us. Because it is your joy to help. And it should be our joy to help others. And so right now we lift up Hedgewood to you, Father God. And we pray that like Simon of Cyrene, we would bear that burden with them. That we would love that small community that can't do anything for us materially, but they can sure do a lot for us spiritually because they are the way that we touch you. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would flow through every hallway and every room in that residential center and you would fill that place with your spirit. That you would bring healing and life and hope to people who are in despair that you would sustain every single worker that works there, that they wouldn't go there hating their job, but they would go there knowing they're on the mission field, sustained by the love of Christ. We thank you that you never end, and we pray that you would fill us as we come to your table. In your holy, precious name we pray, amen. The ushers will release you from the back to the front. Come get poor with Christ. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.